Chapter 82, Part 2 of Varney the Vampire, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Varney the Vampire, Volume 2 by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter 82, Part 2. Varney was silent for several moments. He seemed perceptibly moved by the manner of the young man as well as by the matter of his discourse. In fact, one would suppose that Charles Holland had succeeded in investing what he said with some sort of charm that won much upon the fancy of Sir Francis Barney, for when he ceased to speak, the latter said in a low voice, Go on, go on, you have surely much more to say. No, Varney, I have said enough, and not thus much would I have said had I not been aware, most certainly and truly aware, without the shadow of a doubt by your manner, that you are most accessible to human feeling. I, accessible to human feeling, know you to whom you speak? Am I not he before whom all men shudder, whose name has been a terror and desolation? And yet you can talk of my human feelings. Nay, if I had had any, be sure they would have been extinguished by the persecutions I have endured from those who, you know, with savage ferocity have sought my life. No, Varney, I give you credit for being a subtler reasoner than thus to argue. You know well that you were the aggressor to those parties who sought your life. You know well that with the greatest imaginable pains you held yourself up to them as a thing of great terror. I did, I did. You cannot, then, turn around upon ignorant persons and blame them because your exertions to make yourself seem what you wish were but too successful. You use the word seem, said Varney, with a bitterness of aspect, as if you could imply a doubt that I am that which thousands by their fears would testify me to be. Thousands might, said Charles Holland, but not among them am I, Varney. I will not be made the victim of superstition. Were you to enact before my very eyes some of the feats which, to the senses of others, would stamp you as the preternatural being you assume to be, I would doubt the evidence of my own senses, ere I permitted such a bugbear to oppress my brain. Go, said Sir Francis Barney, go, I have no more words for you, I have nothing to relate to you. Nay, you have already listened sufficiently to me to give me hope that I had awakened some of the humanity that was in your nature. Do not, Sir Francis Barney, crush that hope, even as it was budding forth. Not for my own sake do I ask you for revelations, that may, perhaps, must be painful for you, but for the sake of Flora Bannerworth, to whom you own abundance of reparation. No, no. In the name of all that is great and good and just, I call upon you for justice. What have I to do with such an invocation? Utter such a sentiment to men who, like yourself, are invested with the reality as well as the outward show of human nature. Nay, Sir Francis Varney, now you belie yourself. You have passed through a long, and perchance a stormy life. Can you look back upon your career, and find no reminiscences of the past that shall convince you that you are of the great family of man, and have had abundance of human feelings and human affections? Peace, peace! Nay, Sir Francis Varney, I will take your word, and if you will lay your hand upon your heart, and tell me truly that you have never felt what it was to love, to have all feeling, all taste, and all hope of future joy, concentrated on one individual, I will despair and leave you. If you will tell me that never, in your whole life, you have felt for any fair and glorious creature as I now feel for Flora Bannerworth, 
a being for whom you could have sacrificed not only existence, but all the hopes of a glorious future that bloom around it, if you will tell me, with the calm, dispassionate aspect of truth, that you have held yourself aloof from such human feelings, I will no longer press you to a disclosure which I shall bring no argument to urge. The agitation of Sir Francis Varney's countenance was perceptible, and Charles Holland was about to speak again, when, striking him upon the breast with his clinched hand, the vampire checked him, saying, Do you wish to drive me mad, that you thus, from memory's hidden cells, conjure up images of the past? Then there are such things to conjure up. There are such shadows only sleeping, but which require only, as you did even now, but a touch to awaken them to life and energy. Oh, Sir Francis Varney, do not tell me you are not human. The vampire made a furious gesture, as if he would have attacked Charles Holland, but then he sank nearly to the floor, as if soul-stricken by some recollection that unnerved his arm. He shook with unwanted emotion, and, from the frightful livid aspect of his countenance, Charles dreaded some serious accession of indisposition, which might, if nothing else did, prevent him from making the revelation he so much sought to hear from his lips. Varney, he cried, Varney, be calm. You will be listened to by one who will draw no harsh, no hasty conclusions. By one who, with that charity, I grieve to say, is rare, will place upon the words you utter the most favorable construction. Tell me all, I pray you, tell me all. This is strange, said the vampire. I never thought that aught human could have moved me. Young man, you have touched the chords of memory. They vibrate throughout my heart producing cadences and sounds of years long past. Bear with me a while. And you will speak to me? I will. Having your promise, then, I am content, Varney. But you must be secret, not even in the wildest waste of nature, where you can well presume that naught but heaven can listen to your whispering, must you utter one word of that which I shall tell to you. Alas, said Charles, I dare not take such a confidence. I have said that it is not for myself. I seek such knowledge of what you are, and what you have been, but it is for another so dear to me, that all charms of life that make up other men's delights equal not the witchery of one glance from her, speaking as it does of the glorious light from that heaven which is eternal, from whence she sprung. And you reject my communication, said Varney, because I will not give you leave to expose it to Flora Bannerworth. It must be so. And you are most anxious to hear what I have to relate? Most anxious indeed, indeed most anxious. Then have I found in that scruple which besets your mind a better argument for trusting you than had ye been loud in protestation. Had your promises of secrecy been but those which come from the lip and not from the heart, my confidence would not have been rejected on such grounds. I think that I dare trust you. With leave to tell Flora that which you shall communicate. You may whisper it to her, but to no one else, without my special leave and license. I agree to those terms, and will religiously preserve them. I do not doubt you for one moment, and now I will tell to you what never yet has passed my lips to mortal man. Now will I connect together some matters which you may have heard piecemeal from others. What others are they? Dr. Chillingworth, and he who once officiated as a London hangman. I have heard something from those quarters. Then listen to me, and you shall better understand that which you have heard. Some years ago, it matters not the number, on a stormy night, towards the autumn of the year, 
two men sat alone in poverty, and that species of distress which beset the haughty, profligate, daring man, who has been accustomed all his life to its most enticing enjoyments, but never to that industry which alone ought to produce them and render them great and magnificent. Two men, and who are they? I was one. Look upon me, I was one of those men, and strong and evil passions were battling in my heart. And the other? Was Marmaduke Bannerworth. Gracious heaven, the father of her whom I adore, the suicide. Yes, the same, that man stained with a thousand vices, blasted by a thousand crimes, the father of her who partakes nothing of his nature, who borrows nothing from his memory but his name, was the man who sat with me, plotting and contriving how, by fraud or violence, we were to lead our usual life of revelry and wild, audacious debauch. Go on, go on, believe me, I am deeply interested. I can see as much. We were not nice in the various schemes which our prolific fancies engendered. If trickery and the false dice at the gaming-table sufficed not to fill our purses, we were bold enough for violence. If simple robbery would not succeed, we would take a life. Murder? Aye, call it by its proper name, a murder. We sat till the midnight hour had passed, without arriving at a definite conclusion. We saw no plan of practicable operation, and so we wandered onwards to one of those deep dens of iniquity, a gaming-house, wherein we had won and lost thousands. We had no money, but we staked largely, in the shape of a wager, upon the success of one of the players. We knew not, or cared not, for the consequences if we had lost. But, as it happened, we were largely successful, and beggars as we had walked into that place, we might have left it independent men. But when does the gambler know when to pause in his career? If defeat awakens all the raging passions of humanity within his bosom, success but feeds the great vice that has been there engendered. To the dawn of morn we played, the bright sun shone in, and yet we played. The midday came and went, the stimulant of wine supported us, and still we played. Then came the shadows of evening, stealing on in all their beauty. But what were they to us amid those mutations of fortune, which at one moment made us princes, and placed palaces at our control, and at another debased us below the veriest beggar that craves the stinted alms of charity from door to door. And there was one man who, from the first to the last, stayed by us like a very fiend. More than man, I thought he was not human. We won of all but of him. People came and brought their bright red gold, and laid it down before us, but for us to take it up, and then by a cruel stroke of fortune he took it from us. The night came on, we won, and he won of us. The clock struck twelve, we were beggars. God knows what was he. We saw him place his winnings about his person. We saw the smile that curved the corners of his lips. He was calm, and we were maddened. The blood flowed temperately through his veins, but in ours it was burning lava, scorching as it went through every petty artery, and drying up all human thought, all human feeling. The winner left, and we tracked his footsteps. When he reached the open air, although he had taken much less than we of the intoxicating beverages that are supplied gratis to those who frequent those haunts of infamy, it was evident that some sort of inebriation attacked him. His steps were disordered and unsteady, and, as we followed him, we could perceive, by the devious track that he took, that he was somewhat uncertain of his route. We had no fixed motive in so pursuing this man. It was but an impulsive proceeding at the best, 
but as he still went on and cleared the streets, getting into the wild and open country and among the hedgerows, we began to whisper together, and to think that what we did not owe to fortune, we might to our own energy and courage at such a moment. I need not hesitate to say so, since, to hide the most important feature of my revelation from you, would be but to mock you. We resolved upon robbing him. And was that all? It was all that our resolution went to. We were not anxious to spill blood, but still we were resolved that we would accomplish our purpose, even if it required murder for its consummation. Have you heard enough? I have not heard enough, although I guess the rest. You may well guess it from its preface. He turned down a lonely pathway, which, had we chosen it ourselves, could not have been more suitable for the attack we meditated. There were tall trees on either side, and a hedgerow stretching high up between them. We knew that that lane led to a suburban village, which, without a doubt, was the object of his destination. Then Marmaduke Bannerworth spoke, saying, What have we to do must be done now or never. There needs not two in this adventure. Shall you or I require him to refund what he has won from us? I care not, I said, but if we are to accomplish our purpose without arousing even a shadow of resistance, it is better to show him its futility by both appearing and take a share in the adventure. This was agreed upon, and we hastened forward. He heard footsteps pursuing him, and quickened his pace. I was the fleetest runner, and overtook him. I passed him a pace or two, and then turning, I faced him, and impeded his progress. The lane was narrow, and a glance behind him showed him Marmaduke Bannerworth, so that he was hemmed in between two enemies, and could move neither to the right nor to the left, on account of the thick brushwood that intervened between the trees. Then, with an amazing courage that sat but ill upon him, he demanded of us what we wanted, and proclaimed his right to pass, despite the obstruction we placed in his way. The dialogue was brief. I, being foremost, spoke to him. Your money, I said, your winnings at the gaming table. We cannot and we will not lose it. So suddenly that he had nearly taken my life, he drew a pistol from his pocket, and leveling it at my head, he fired upon me. Perhaps, had I moved, it might have been my death, but, as it was, the bullet furrowed my cheek, leaving a scar, the path of which is yet visible in a white cicatrix. I felt a stunning sensation, and thought myself a dead man. I cried aloud to Marmaduke Bannerworth, and he rushed forward. I knew not that he was armed, and that he had the power about him to do the deed which he then accomplished. But there was a groan, a slight struggle, and the successful gamester fell upon the green sward, bathed in his blood. And this is the father of her whom I adore? It is. Are you shocked to think of such a near relationship between so much beauty and intelligence and a midnight murderer? Is your philosophy so poor that the daughter's beauty suffers from the commission of a father's crime? No, no, it is not so. Do not fancy that, for one moment, I can entertain such unworthy opinions. The thought that crossed me was that I should have to tell one of such a gentle nature that her father had done such a deed. On that head you can use your own discretion. The deed was done. There was sufficient light for us to look upon the features of the dying man. Ghastly and terrific they glared upon us, while the glazed eyes, as they were upturned to the bright sky, seemed appealing to heaven for vengeance against us for having done the deed. Many a day and many an hour since, at all those times and all seasons, I have seen them following me and gloating over the misery they had the power to make. I think I see them now. Indeed. 
yes, look, look, see how they glare upon me, with what a fixed and frightful stare the bloodshot pupils keep their place. There, there, oh, save me from such a visitation again, it is too horrible. I dare not, I cannot endure it. And yet why do you gaze at me with such an aspect, dead visitant? You know that it was not my hand that did the deed who laid you low. You know that not to me are you able to lay the heavy charge of your death. Varney, you look upon vacancy, said Charles Holland. No, no, vacancy it may be to you, but to me tis full of horrible shapes. Compose yourself, you have taken me far into your confidence already. I pray you now to tell me all. I have in my brain no room for horrible conjectures, such as those which might else torment me. Barney was silent for a few minutes, and then he wiped from his brow the heavy drops of perspiration that had there gathered, and heaved a deep sigh. Speak to me, added Charles, nothing will so much relieve you from the terrors of this remembrance as making a confidence which reflection will approve of, and which you will know that you have no reason to repent. Charles Holland, said Barney, I have already gone too far to retract, much too far I know, and can well understand all the danger of half-confidence. You already know so much, that it is fit you should know more. Go on, then, Barney, I will listen to you. I know not if, at this juncture, I can commend myself to say more. I feel that what next has to be told will be most horrible for me to tell, most sad for you to hear told. I can well believe, Varney, from your manner of speech, and from the words you use, that you have some secret to relate beyond the simple fact of the murder of this gamester by Marmaduke Bannerworth. You are right, such is the fact. The death of that man could not have moved me as you now see me moved. There is a secret connected with his fate which I may well hesitate to utter, a secret too horrible even to whisper to the winds of heaven, although I did not do the deed, no, no, I did not strike the blow, not I, not I. Varney, it is astonishing to me the pains you take to assure yourself of your innocence of this deed. No one accuses you, but still, were it not that I am impressed with a strong conviction that you are speaking to me nothing but the truth, the very fact of your extreme anxiety to acquit yourself would engender suspicion. I can understand that feeling, Charles Holland, I can fully understand it, I do not blame you for it. It is a most natural one. But when you know all, you will feel with me how necessary it must have been to my peace to seize upon every trivial circumstance that can help me to a belief in my own innocence. It may be so. As yet, you well know, I speak in ignorance. But what could there have been in the character of that gambler that has made you so sympathetic concerning his decease? Nothing, nothing whatever in his character— he was a bad man, not one of these free, open spirits which are seduced into crime by thoughtlessness, not one of those whom we pity, perchance, more than we condemn, but a man without a redeeming trait in his disposition, a man so heaped up with vices and iniquities, that society gained much by his decease, and not an individual could say that he had lost a friend. And yet the mere thought of the circumstances connected with his death seems almost to drive you to the verge of despair. You are right, the mere thought has that effect. You have aroused all my curiosity to know the causes of such a feeling. Varney paced the apartment in silence for many minutes. He seemed to be enduring a great mental struggle, and at length, when he turned to Charles Holland and spoke, there were upon his countenance traces of deep emotion. I have said, young man, that I will take you into my confidence. I have said that I will clear up many seeming mysteries, 
and that I will enable you to understand what was obscure in the narrative of Dr. Chillingworth, and of that man who filled the office of public executioner, and who has haunted me so long. It is true, then, as the doctor states, that you were executed in London? I was. And resuscitated by the galvanic process put into operation by Dr. Chillingworth? As he supposed, but there are truths connected with natural philosophy which he dreamed not of. I bear a charmed life, and it was but accident which produced a similar effect upon the latent springs of my existence in the house to which the executioner conducted me, to what would have been produced had I been suffered, in the free and open air, to wait until the cool moonbeams fell upon me. Varney, Varney, said Charles Holland, you will not succeed in convincing me of your supernatural powers. I hold such feelings and sensations at arm's length. I will not, I cannot assume you to be what you affect. I ask for no man's belief. I know that which I know, and, gathering experience from the coincidence of different phenomena, I am compelled to arrive at certain conclusions. Believe what you please, doubt what you please, but I say again that I am not as other men. I am in no condition to dispute your proposition. I wish not to dispute it, but you are wandering, Varney, from the point. I wait anxiously for a continuation of your narrative. I know that I am wandering from it, I know well that I am wandering from it, and that the reason I do so is that I dread that continuation. That dread will not be the less for its postponement. You are right, but tell me, Charles Holland, although you are young, you have been about in the great world sufficiently to form correct opinions, and to understand which is related to you, drawing deeper deductions from certain facts, and arriving possibly at more correct conclusions than some of maturer years with less wisdom. I will freely answer, Varney, any question you may put to me. I know it. Tell me, then, what measure of guilt you attach to me in the transaction I have noticed to you. It seems, then, to me that, not contemplating the man's murder, you cannot be accused of the act, although a set of fortuitous circumstances made you appear an accomplice to its commission. You think I may be acquitted? You can acquit yourself, knowing that you did not contemplate the murder. I did not contemplate it. I know not what desperate deed I should have stopped short at then, in the height of my distress, but I neither contemplated taking that man's life, nor did I strike the blow which sent him from existence. There is even some excuse as regards the higher crime for Marmaduke Bannerworth. Think you so? Yes, he thought that you were killed, and impulsively he might have struck the blow that made him a murderer. Be it so, I am willing, extremely willing, that anything should occur that should remove the odium of guilt from any man. Be it so, I say, with all my heart. But now, Charles Holland, I feel that we must meet again ere I can tell you all. But in the meantime, let Flora Bannerworth rest in peace. She need dread nothing from me. Avarice and revenge, the two passions which found a home in my heart, are now stifled forever. Revenge? Did you say revenge? I did. Whence the marvel, am I not sufficiently human for that? But you coupled it with the name of Flora Bannerworth. I did, and that is part of my mystery. A mystery, indeed, to imagine such a being as Flora could awaken any such feeling in your heart, a most abundant mystery. It is so, I do not affect to deny it, but yet it is true, although so greatly mysterious. But tell her that although at one time I looked upon her as one whom I cared not if I injured, her beauty and distress changed the current of my thoughts, and won me greatly.
From the moment I found I had the power to become the bane of her existence, I ceased to wish to be so, and never again shall she experience a pang of alarm from Varney the vampire. Your message shall be faithfully delivered, and doubt not that it will be received with grateful feelings. Nevertheless, I should have much wished to have been in a position to inform her of more particulars. Come to me here at midnight tomorrow, and you shall know all. I will have no reservation with you, no concealments. You shall know whom I have had to battle against, and how it is that a world of evil passions took possession of my heart and made me what I am. Are you firm in this determination, Varney? Will you indeed tell me no more tonight? No more, I have said it. Leave me now, I have need of more repose, for of late sleep has seldom closed my eyelids. Charles Holland was convinced, from the positive manner in which he spoke, that nothing more in the shape of information, at that time, was to be expected from Varney, and being fearful that if he urged this strange being too far, at a time when he did not wish it, he might refuse all further communication, he thought it prudent to leave him, so he said to him, Be assured, Varney, I shall keep the appointment you have made, with an expectation when we do meet, of being rewarded by a recital of some full particulars. You shall not be disappointed. Farewell, farewell. Charles Holland bade him adieu and left the place. Although he had now acquired all the information he hoped to take away with him when Varney first began to be communicative, yet, when he came to consider how strange and unaccountable a being he had been in communication with, Charles could not but congratulate himself that he had heard so much, for, from the manner of Varney, he could well suppose that that was, indeed, the first time he had been so communicative upon subjects which evidently held so conspicuous a place in his heart. And he had abundance of hope, likewise, from what had been said by Varney, that he would keep his word, and communicate to him fully all else that he required to know, and when he recollected those words which Varney had used, signifying that he knew the danger of half-confidences, that hope grew into a certainty, and Charles began to have no doubt but that on the next evening, all that was mysterious in the various affairs connected with the vampire would become clear and open to the light of day. He strolled down the lane in which the lone house was situated, revolving these matters in his mind, and when he arrived at its entrance he was rather surprised to see a throng of persons hastily moving onward, with some appearance of dismay about them, and anxiety depicted upon their countenances. He stopped a lad and inquired of him the cause of the seeming tumult. Why, sir, the fact is, said the boy, a crowd from the town's been burning down Bannerworth Hall, and they've killed a man. Bannerworth Hall? You must be mistaken. Well, sir, I ought not to call it Bannerworth Hall, because I mean the old ruins in the neighborhood that are supposed to have been originally Bannerworth Hall before the house now called such was built. And moreover, as the Bannerworths have always had a garden there, and two or three old sheds, the people in the town called it Bannerworth Hall in common with the other building. I understand. And do you say that all have been destroyed? Yes, sir, all that was capable of being burnt has been burnt, and, what is more, a man has been killed among the ruins. We don't know who he is, but the folks said he was a vampire and they left him for dead. When will these terrible outrages cease? Oh, Varney, Varney, you have much to answer for, even if, in your own conscience, you succeed in acquitting yourself of the murder, some of the particulars concerning which you have informed me of. End of chapter 82